0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Oxford Policy Pod. I am your host, Vitor Thomas. Today we have a guest with very provocative ideas about public policy, with whose work I believe every policymaker and aspiring policymakers should familiarize. Professor Land Pritchett is a visiting scholar and research fellow here at the Blavatnik School of Government in Oxford. He is the director of the Research on Improving Systems of Education Program, or RISE for short, among other things. Before that, he was a professor of the practice of economic development at the Harvard Kennedy School, a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development, and he has a long trajectory at the World Bank. His curriculum is very impressive and extensive, so I'll stop myself here. He has authored several books and papers, including Deals and Development, The Political Dynamics of Growth Episodes, Building State Capability, and The Rebirth of Education, Schooling and Learning, among others. In this episode, we will discuss Professor Pritchett's view on the role of development, the role of evidence, and systems of education. So let's dive in. Welcome to the Policy Pod, Professor Pritchett. It's a pleasure to have you here as our guest. It's uh, nice to be here. If we go to your website right now, um, the latest post you have is called A New Paper About Development and Aid and Monkeys. Could you tell us a little bit about it? Well, um, I think sometimes in
1: discussing foreign aid and its impact, people get really deeply confused. People assume that development hasn't been successful and therefore conclude that aid hasn't been successful. But that's completely, totally wrong. Uh, A professor from Sweden, Hans Rosling, used to say that people know less about the progress and development than monkeys. And the reason they know less about the progress and development than monkeys is what they know is wrong. Whereas at least monkeys know they don't know anything. Whereas he poses a series of questions to master students about the developing world and its progress. And they're just systematically, wildly wrongly in a pessimistic direction they think there's been less progress than there had. So the point of this paper and the blog is development has been this massive wild success. There's been more progress in the part of the world we call the developing world in the last 60 years than in the previous 6,000 years of human history infant mortality and is way down life expectancies are way up way more kids are in school i mean you know going to school was an anomaly in 1950 and now nearly every child goes to school incomes have gone up poverty's gone way down so the question about aid isn't we shouldn't start from well geez, developments failed therefore aid must fail we should start from developments in this massive amazing success more progress in human well-being on every material metric in the last 60 than the previous 6000 combined then the only question is has aid played any role of that maybe aid you know hasn't played any role in that and it all would have happened without aid but let's at least get the facts right whereas most discussions about foreign aid start from a complete worse than monkey understanding of the progress there's actually gonna be. And this happens in a lot of public discourse where the public discourse starts from just fundamental misconceptions about the facts and then reasons to, you know, and if you start from the wrong facts, you're nearly always gonna reason to the wrong conclusions.
0: And I guess that you felt the need to write this article because you think that it's not only a matter of how people in general perceive, but in in some ways this permeates how policy is made or how uh, organizations think about development. Can you talk a little bit about why you felt the need to write this this article? No, I, I felt the re- need to write this article because I think um, <clears throat> the
1: aid community, when they participate in the po- public policy and political space in the rich world, nearly always is playing defense rather in the sense that they're trying to defend some modest, tiny little budget allocation. And playing defense tends to reinforce pessimism. Uh, And so they, they, they tend to like, oh, there's these terrible things happening in the world and we need to do something about it. And I think that's a fundamentally wrong strategy. Success sells. You should say, we're having these wonderful successes in the world. Don't you want to be part of this success? So I think, again, and, and also, even within the development community, the whole sort of fad about using randomized controlled trials fundamentally starts from pessimistic premises. They start by saying, well, we don't have any good evidence about the impact of aid. Well, the man on the street, person on the street, hearing we don't have any evidence about the impact of aid assumes that's because nothing positive has happened. Whereas they're making a much more subtle intellectual point that's misunderstood. They're saying, oh, yeah, yeah, AIDS has been this massive success or development has seen massive progress, but we don't know the attributability of that progress to specific actions. That's a whole different thing. And I, I use some sports analogies. It's like, look, you know, to use an American sports analogy that hopefully is global enough, you know, Tom Brady won six Super Bowl championships in American football with the New England Patriots. One can ask how much of that success was the coach, how much of the success was Tom Brady, but no one denies the fact they won the six championships. Whereas with development in the public discourse, like people don't think we've won six championships. And then if they hear we don't have any evidence about the attributability of success to aid, they assume that the endeavor was a failure, and therefore aid might be a failure. Whereas the endeavor of promoting development, massive success, we just don't really know with any precision how much of a role the specific actions around foreign aid have taken. That's an entirely different public policy framing of the debate. So I think we tend to get seduced into playing defense and and by playing defense, we reinforce a completely misconceived pessimism.
0: It's very interesting how uh, you bring this in some of our research in articles, such as RCTs in development, lessons from the hype cycle, or rigorous ev- evidence isn't. Uh, and for me, in my experience, I have conflicted views on it because I've seen some of the um, uh, perverse effects of this hype on evidence uh, in my work in international uh, developing development agencies when you have to waste so much of our resources on proving to donors the impact of your work. But at the same time, I am from Brazil and I see uh, this talk about evidence being used as a as a tool for uh, politicians to refute ideas that are very flimsy or really have no ground in, in reality. Uh, I would like to, to hear from you, What do you think uh, is the role of these more, let's say, rigorous uh, evidence on the impact uh, of development uh, for policymaking and in politics? Uh, In your...
1: So let me start. uh... (laughs) When I'd been at Oxford for only a few months, I got invited to some workshop that faculty here were holding on evidence. and as part of my interventions, I said, you guys know you're all talking bullshit, right? Uh, after which the, some weeks later, the dean pulled me aside and said that actually here at Oxford, they don't use the word bullshit, um, uh, which they probably should more. Um, so by and large, the whole fat around RCTs is complete total horseshit start to finish. Uh, I, the real puzzle is why it's been so wildly successful and the reason, and I have a deep concern that RCTs are actually a weapon against the weak because people who have power don't need evidence. They have power. And so who has to do an SCT to RCT to prove that their thing is successful in order to get a fund is the weak. So by again, by buying into the notion that the only way I can persuade you to do something good for other people is I, as someone who's trying to do good for other people and being held to this standard of evidence that's radically higher than the military have to prevent, that the police have to prevent, that, you know, subsidies to the consumption of things of the middle class have to present. It can actually be counterproductive to buy into, I, I'm buying into this, oh, I have to, I am under the obligation to present you rigorous evidence of what I'm proposing or else it won't get funded Whereas 99% of the government budget doesn't have to live by this standard of evidence at all. So if RCTs were being superimposed on whether the U.S. military needs a new aircraft carrier that costs a billion dollars equally to whether or not their aid program is effective, I'd be all for it. But that's not the way the world's working. And I think by and large, the RCT movement has been a weapon against the weak. Lots of stuff isn't getting funded because it can't be proven to be effective. And I think that drives the whole dynamic of the discourse in the
0: wrong direction. Very interesting. And I think that this, um, as much of your work, is very provocative. uh, (laughs) And so, Another part of your work was in the building state capability in the Harvard Kennedy School, and you were one of the co-developers of the PDIA. Mm -hmm. For those who are not aware, it's a methodology, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, it it tries to build state capability from the ground up, uh, Mm. empowering teams in in government to to deliver uh, public services. What is the connecting thread across your work? Uh, how does this connect to this uh, provocation on the role of aid, on the role of evidence? How does this connect to your uh, work in education uh, that we will delve a little <laughs> bit deeper uh, right next?
1: I, I don't, I've tried to avoid there being a connecting thread in my work. Uh, uh, I, 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 I just work on what I see as important in a place where there's an opportunity to make a difference. And I think in the, I got working on state capability in part because I had been in the World Bank, but I'd been in the research department and then in 1998 went from the research department to actually the operational end of the World Bank, where I personally was, you know, responsible for delivering large scale World Bank projects. And uh, I was uh, almost 40 years old by the time I did that, but I learned more in two years of working in operation than I had in the previous eight in being in research about the way the world works. And one of the things I realized is it was much less important what the design of what you were trying to do was than the capability of the organization we were working with to do anything at all and that one of the main areas in which there'd been lack of progress, which we call in our book, The Big Stuck, is that donor organizations had always recognized the need for high capability organizations to implement, but had been remarkably unsuccessful in developing capabilities of government organizations to do things beyond the routine logistics. And so um, that was my original motivation was sort of seeing in practice that lots of public sector organizations were sort of in this cycle of a lack of improvement in their fundamental capability. And unless we like address that problem, the kind of higher order questions of should we do that? You know, a lot of the discussion in development and in policy is what should we do? Should we do this or that? that is often out of touch with the actual reality of what governments can do. And so uh, part of PDIA says, let's start from where you are. A map of where you want to get needs to start from where you are, whereas a whole bunch of development discussions start from, suppose we are able to do this or that, which of those two things we should do? And like, well, you can't do either of those things, so it's not a very interesting discussion. So how I got involved in uh, state capability was by working in the operational side where I was working more closely and looked at the actual dynamics of what organizations could do and moreover the dynamics of how do organizations actually get better at stuff. And I think starting from the question of how in practice do organizations get better at doing stuff is a very interesting entry rather than starting from i have this idealized notion of what this organization should be doing
0: very very interesting uh i want to delve deeper and, and uh, take advantage of, of the theme that we're discussing now to go move to your work on education so 18 years ago more or less i believe you had one of those encounters in, uh, in your oper- more operational work in india and that prompted the the, the book The Rebirth of Education Schooling Ain't Learning mm. could you just very briefly t- so that our listeners understand what we're talking about here what happened in, in India at that time what, <laughs> and what did you see and how it moved you uh, in terms of your research and work so I I um... I was working on a number of
1: issues in India, but one of them about local government and what local governments were actually responsible for. And one of those things was education. And there was a NGO that has since become very prominent in the world, deservedly so, Pratham, that was doing a village-based project where they assessed learning of students and um, then did village meetings where they would report on their ground-up assessment of learning that they had a very concrete tool that everyone understands. So I went out to visit this. I went to a meeting in which I saw how that was implemented and then later went to a meeting in which they were presenting these results. And it was a really uh, powerful for me experience because first I saw them present the results in which they were revealing to parents for the first time, just how little their students had learned and this was a revelation. They they had sort of been sending their kids to school and assumed they were learning. And the assumption is what part of my uh, overall thing. And then more powerfully, a man about my age stood up and he said, you've betrayed us. Uh, you You told me that if I send my child to school, he would live a life different than mine. And my whole life I've worked like a donkey because I just didn't know anything else and had no other skills. So I've just been a donkey and you told me my child's life would be different, but now I learned that he hasn't learned, which was just emotionally powerful to me. I was like, what a powerful statement. And, and then what was even more striking is the head of school in this village, uh, rather than responding in any sympathetic way at all stood up and said, yeah, yeah, you're right. Your child is a donkey, because donkeys come of donkeys and you're a donkey. And what do you expect us to do in the school? You give us donkeys, we'll give you donkeys back. Unbelievable hostile and unresponsive thing. And I realized how did it get to the point to where the people who were responsible for the education of the future children of India, we were so brutally indifferent to the actual learning outcomes of these children. And that started me down the path to a book about the rebirth of education. And what I mean by the rebirth of education is when the world and the developing world set out on the mission of education, they had in mind that they would put kids through schooling and that as the kids went through schooling, they would progress in their learning and their skills and their capabilities to prepare them for life. And what happened was the focus on delivering the schooling became the be all and end all of the design. And the assumption that that would produce learning was failing almost completely in many places. And that learning was stagnant, learning was low, learning maybe even getting worse and worse over time. And that yet the global education community was just unbelievably
0: blithely unconcerned about this. And then uh, you, I I believe that after this encounter, you started to delve deeper in in the study of educational systems, and then eight years later, you released The Rebirth of Education. What are the main ideas uh, of the book, and how has this evolved uh, in the last 10 years, uh, since the book was written in 2013, and now we're in 2023?
1: Well, for the last uh, eight years, I've and my affiliation with Oxford comes through this program called Research on Improving Education Systems, which is a large scale research. And I'll tell you the uh, anecdote of how this research started, which uh, which was somebody who was working with a British agency, DFID at the time, called and he said, oh, you know, we've kind of read your book and think this is a new voice in the global education that needs to be heard and there's a whole bunch of ideas here that you know we'd be happy to fund a large-scale research project to you know do more research along these lines and we hope you'd be interested in putting forward a proposal and i said no i'm not and he was quite stunned because they probably don't offer <laughs> I essentially offer a large-scale research project to people. And they're like, no, I'm not interested. He's like, well, what do you mean you're not interested? And I so, said, well, uh, my research career, I'm a guerrilla, not a general. Like, I rush in and I blow shit up, and then I run <laughs> away. Like, I'm a provocateur. I'm not a – I don't, like, move armies forward into place and in the logistics of, you know, winning wars. I, I'm i like a gorilla." I, and I've said what I've got, I, I've said what I've had to say, and I've said it as best I can say it. Uh, and the person from Diffid uh, fortunately had a very clever response, as he said, "Well." sometimes guerrillas take the capital. And when you take the capital, you kind of have a responsibility to move to rule, to move it forward. And you're actually being very influential and it's irresponsible of you to run away. So I ended up spending the last eight years of my life, significant part of it being a general for the first time in which I tried to coordinate forces. And so we've learned a lot. Um, one of the things we've learned is, and we've spent a lot of time researching, is, is a, um, the existing systems qua systems are built um, to fail without blame. And once a system has landed in the equilibrium of being able to fail without blame, and by which I mean, there's the world's been in a... The, it turns out, in most countries of the world, the learning outcomes have been stagnant and or in serious deterioration for a very long time, and no one's getting fired over it. Like, no, that
0: allows the, the professor who said, <laughs> told the, the parents that their kids were donkeys. Yeah, uh, yeah, so to exist. just be insouciant about it because they had
1: locked themselves into systems that allowed them to essentially fail without blame. Meaning, yeah, we failed to educate your kid, but it's your kid's fault. Or we failed to educate your kid, but we followed all these acceptable, accepted promises, premises, and we therefore, since we're process compliant, we can't be blamed for failure. And by the way, bureaucratic systems as part of the PDIA approach. They lock, they protect themselves from blame by locking themselves into ways of failing without blame. And once you're locked into being able to fail without blame, failure can become a persistent thing. So one of the key questions of the research is how do you get out of a sort of locked in big stuck spiral in which you're failing without blame? And how do you create the political political consensus to support the system changes. Because once you're locked in a system that can fail without blame, you can come along with great ideas of how things could be better, but they won't they won't get adopted, they won't scale. So that's what the research has been about. And I think we've made a lot of progress in understanding the politics of this, of understanding the organizational learning dynamics of this, in addition to the actual we've got more evidence about the actual process of learning, but it wasn't, this isn't primarily a failure of availability of the knowledge of how to do pedagogy, right. You know, I mean, Japan had super high learning levels in the 1960s. So people in the world know how to do this. The hard question is why aren't they doing what's known?
0: And what kind of, Results have been able uh, has rise been able to to achieve what, what kind of uh, interesting findings or new models for uh, potential policymakers who are interested in revamping the educational systems in their respective countries. So I, I think this this um,
1: this is at two levels. <laughs> uh, the first level is. We've actually induced the global education community and been part of it. I mean, nothing happens because of one program or one person alone in the world. It's always an effort. I, I constantly repeat to my team that it, the only way to avoid being a drop in the ocean is to be part of a wave. So you have to think hard about What's the wave you're part of and how do you induce this wave to move? You know, whatever you do as a person or an organization or even a large scale research project can't move the needle unless you you're part of a larger network. So one of the things we've done is we actually now have the world talking and measuring seriously progress on concrete learning goals because a way because One of the key things we've gotten people, I think, to acknowledge and realize is that there were always two ways a child could emerge into their adulthood or adolescence with higher capabilities. One is that they go to more school and one is that they learn more per year of school. And if you go back to the 1960s, more school was the obvious solution because most kids weren't going to school. And if you go back to the 1980s, more school still seemed like the promising thing, but we're essentially out of room. Most kids in the world start school. Only about 3% of kids never go to school in the world, which is an amazing historical transformational success. Um, Most kids now stay in school for a very long time. So the headroom of more school, which was what systems measured and what they could do in a logistical way and hence was compatible with their existing capabilities, we're out, of, we're out of runway space for that to make a difference in improving children's ultimate educational outcomes. The only path forward is raising learning per year of school. So when you say, you know, the, the RISE research program was always about changing the global discourse first. Before you change practice in the classroom, you have to change what people perceive is the urgent problem. And one of the main goals of RISE was to make learning at the early foundational stages a pressing urgent problem. I think we together with lots of partners have been really successful at that. Second, I think one of the concrete kind of specific proximate determinants classroom practices is that uh, countries have by and large had uh, curricula that were radically out of touch with their ability to deliver. And that led to amazing system problems. So if I ask you to fly around the room by flapping your arms, I can't hold you accountable for not doing that. I can't say, oh, I asked you to fly around the room by flapping your arms and you didn't do it. Therefore, I'm gonna punish you or hold you accountable. It's like, no, I can't be held accountable for what's impossible. So a large part of the problem in education systems is that they were asked to do the doable on enrollment and asked to do the impossible on learning. So what did they do? They did the doable. Um, So an important movement in the world is now called teaching at the right level. And it comes under various guises and various implementations, but it's an acknowledgement that we actually have to start from where the kids are, rather than from where we wish the world was. And that a lot of the reason why children learn so little is that the curricular pace is moving way faster than the ability to deliver. So kids are falling behind and the, the teaching is becoming irrelevant to their actual progress and capabilities. And we've discovered pragmatic ways, both with, you know, structured pedagogy, structured instruction, teacher training, of improving that, that's proving to work in a variety of settings around the world as a concrete thing that can be done about the learning
0: crisis. We are running a little bit out of time, so I would like to make one last question uh, before we, we finish the episode, which is Uh, Most of our listeners are either policymakers or workers in in development. What would uh, would be one advice you would give them if they want to really leave their mark on the world uh, with their work?
1: So I think advice I would give to people is... Become responsible for something. I think too much of the public policy process, people see themselves as advisors or advocates. And the difficulty with advisors or advocates is that in the end, they aren't, you know, they're not responsible for delivering. So I think spending some part of your early ish career responsible for delivering is a really important formative part. So, uh, you know, it's easy to give advice. Uh, I was just talking to a close friend of mine who had been, you know, uh, uh, chief of staff to the prime minister of his country. Uh, And now is actually in very low level politics. And he was telling me that the stress of being, you know, in the lowest level local politics is actually much more than being an advisor to a prime minister. Because ultimately, you're not the decision maker, right? I'm, you know, he said I'm teeing up the information, but all of the pressure was on the person I was advising. So I think it's relat you know, it's relatively um attractive to be in these high profile advice and advocacy kind of engagements. But I think being responsible gives you an entirely different perspective and it gives you a lot more sympathy (laughs) for the challenges of implementation. And I think moving forward uh, across the board, I think new ideas about what to do or a dime a dozen, ability to create the scaled capability for implementation is the challenge.
0: Professor, thank you so much for your presence in the Policy Pod. It was a very, very interesting episode. I am sure our listeners will love, and we hope you, hope to have you at uh, at any point in the future. Thanks. i would be happy if Oxford invites me back after
1: I use the word several times in the in the podcast. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Remember to follow us on social media. You can find us on Instagram as at Oxford PolicyPod underscore and on Twitter as at Oxford PolicyPod. Like, share, comment. You can find a summary of the main points of the podcast in the description of this episode on Spotify or whatever, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.